I don't know about you, but I feel like every time I visit Target, it's this reminder from the merchandise and marketing around me about whatever holiday is just around the corner that I'm supposed to be preparing for. Took me a few minutes at my visit this week to realize, oh, that's why there's all this lovey-dovey stuff around. Valentine's Day is coming. Now, I know Valentine's Day elicits strong reactions from some. I'm not a huge fan myself. But regardless of how you feel about that day, since love is the topic of our passage today, I want us to start by thinking about the idea of love in our culture. We use the word love a lot. From I love you on Valentine's cards and candy to I love that band to I love football. The word love can be so overused. It's not that we aren't sincere in what we're saying. It's just that we're not very precise in what we're saying. Let's just do a little translation experiment here. I love pizza really means I like the taste of pizza or pizza pleases my palate. I love soccer really means I enjoy this activity or this game is fun for me to play. I love you too really means their musical style resonates with my personal preference. I love you can mean, for some people, particularly middle school crushes, you are meeting my needs and making me feel good. Now, I get why we do this. Partly it's shorthand, partly it just sounds better. But it's also unfortunate because language shapes. So when we say, I love then we start to form our concept of love based on those sentiments. Did you notice what all those statements have in common? I love you. The focus is on the I or me. And that's really, you can't see that I love you up there. We'll go to the dark blue from now on. That's light blue. Um, And that's really problematic because the Bible's view of love is exactly the opposite. The Bible would put the emphasis on the you I love you. We know that from Jesus' own words and from the words of his followers, and one follower in particular, John. Today marks the third week in our series, Authentic, where we're looking at this little letter John the disciple wrote to the early church preserved in our Bibles as 1 John. John's an old man now when he writes this. And as one of the early leaders of the early church, he was well-respected. You know how it feels when your company's CEO or founder is on site in the building. Everybody stands up a little straighter, do they not? Let's imagine now that you're one of those people in the early church John is writing to. You've had some from your community leave, denying that Jesus really was God in human form. So you're starting to wonder, are we being a faithful church? I mean, how do we even know when a church is being successful? In many churches today, often the test of whether a church is effective is the ABCs, attendance, buildings, and cash. Now, I'm all for numbers. They always tell us something. But are those what make a church effective? Church tradition has this sweet description of our writer, John, based on writings of his followers that were passed on through the years and recorded by church historian Jerome in the 4th century. All of these eyewitnesses said the one thing John, our church leader, fixated on was love. His constant refrain was, little children, love one another. 
Jerome says this was the one affirmation which long after he'd become too old to preach, he never ceased to give. John, the disciple, then church leader, would elaborate, it is the Lord's command, and if this is done, it is enough. As Stephen Covey says, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Love others is at the very core of the Christian way. In one section of 15 verses alone in this letter, the word love or some form of it occurs 27 times. Love is what John is on about here. Our passage today isn't hard to understand what's being said. It's just hard to apply because there's so much misunderstanding around love today. As Devin mentioned a couple weeks ago in the introduction to this series, John's argument is more circular rather than linear. He'll analyze a theme, leave it, and come back to it in the next chapter. So I'm not going to go through our passage verse by verse today. I'm going to spend the majority of our time in 1 John 4, 7 to 19, though I will occasionally refer back to 1 John 3, 11 to 18. We'll ask some basic questions like what and why and how, and learn, from these, and learn how these verses inform those questions. Hear now the word of the Lord as it comes to us from 1 John 4, 7 to 19. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. The first question I want to ask of this passage is what? What is being said? Well, in a general sense, it's not hard to summarize. Love others. He says that command specifically three times in verses 7, 11, and 21. Chapter 3, verse 11 says the same thing. For this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. This is not peripheral, John says. It's been central from the get-go. That's because this command to love comes right from the mouth of Jesus himself. 
on Jesus last night before his crucifixion, when he shared that last supper with his disciples, John included, Jesus said to them, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And a little later on that same evening, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And still again, this is my command, love each other. Now, I fully acknowledge that the Bible is sometimes really hard to understand since it was written in a different language, culture, and time period. But this is not one of those times. Okay, so loving others is essential to Christian faith. We get it. But let's press a little more specifically and ask, what does real love look like? What more specifically is meant by love? Because this is where our culture's view of love is radically different than the biblical understanding of love. Love here is not romantic love, eros in the Greek language, nor is it even the warmth of affection between friends, phileo in the Greek, both of which are good and God-given gifts. John specifically describes what he means by love with the Greek word agape, a word reserved for the sacrificial initiating generous love of God. Verses 9 to 10 give the greatest example of this extravagant love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Real love is demonstrated by God giving up something very precious to himself, his one and only son, so that others might benefit, so that others might live. John's really fond of this word, life. He uses it a ton, both in this letter and in the book of John, his biography of Jesus. There's a world of difference between merely existing and really living. Jesus offers meaning and purpose found nowhere else. He makes the same point in a slightly different way in verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That phrase, atoning sacrifice, is used in the Old Testament to describe removing guilt from sin or wrongdoing, often through sacrifice. He's talking about Jesus dying in our place so that we can be in relationship with God. He's just made this same point a little earlier on in the letter. The other passage I said that's really similar to this, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers or sisters. John's saying, if we want to know what real love is, we need only to look at the cross. Where Jesus Christ actually gave up his life for our behalf. We need to only look to Jesus, who, though sinless, bears our sin and wrongdoing, offering up his very life so that he might bring life to others, some of whom would never receive his generous offer, all of whom were undeserving of that generous, sacrificial gift. But he did it, because that's what love is, acting for the well-being of others at great cost to yourself regardless of whether the receiver is deserving or responsive to your love. Surrendering what has value to you in order to enrich the life of another. How about that for a note inside a dove chocolate? 
love, giving up what matters to us for the sake of another. Now, what John does here is pretty smart. In 1 John 3.16, he says the standard for real love is laying down your life for another. But since even in the first century, few people actually had that opportunity for martyrdom, he goes on to say, there's another way to do this, people. This can get lived out in a lot of ways. For example, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, literally closes his heart to them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Talk is cheap. We're to demonstrate love by our actions, and that includes our time, our talents or skills or expertise, and our treasure or money. In fact, it's a lot harder to love people in these specific ways than it is to love in general. Some commentators I read this week noted the deliberate and significant shift from the plural in 1 John 3.16, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, to the singular in verse 17, sees a brother or sister in need. Because loving everybody in general can sometimes be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. As one commentator noted, it's far easier to love people in general than it is to love individual men or women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. You don't know any of those, do you? (laughs) When we put it that way, all of life is a chance in learning how to love, isn't it? If love is giving up what matters to us for the good of another, then isn't the umbrella of love broadened to include just about everything? Family, marriage, parenting, friendship, the workplace, the church. Can you imagine if the diagnostic test of love in any of these spheres was how much we give up for the sake of another's good? That would be revolutionary. Now, of course, there are cases in which it is not safe nor wise for us to continue sacrificing for others. And I encourage you to talk with a counselor or good friend about whether your situation warrants that or not. But generally speaking, because of the narcissistic culture in which we live, most of us need to be exhorted more to sacrifice for others' good rather than to looking for our own good. So the what of this passage is, generally speaking, loving others. And more specifically, willing the good of others at great cost to ourselves. But why? Why is loving others in this way so crucial to living the life of faith? Well, there's two parts to the argument John gives. First, God is love. He says this explicitly two times in verse 8 and verse 16. It's not just that God is loving. To say that God is loving is not the same as saying God is love. God is loving means he acts in loving ways towards people as if that is merely just one of his traits. But to say God is love is to say that all his actions are always loving meaning it is in his very nature to love. And if his nature is love, he cannot not love. This is who he is. 
It does not matter whether the objects he is loving are indeed lovable. His love is not dependent on their actions, but on his nature. It's true, it is not all he is. He is also holy and just. But his love encompasses all these other traits, and all that he does flows out of love. Second, the God who is love now lives in us if we have chosen to put our faith in Jesus. This is hard to understand, but it's quite remarkable and wonderfully comforting as I myself have experienced time and time again. The Jewish faith affirmed God could be spirit in which he could come upon certain people at dramatic moments to do his work. But in verses 13 to 16, John, Jesus' close friend and follower, is claiming that all followers of Jesus can have access to his spirit, can be indwelt by his spirit. 1 John 4, 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. Verse 15. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And again, verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in those who follow Jesus. So John's argument is, if God is love and God's in us, then the natural byproduct is that we will love. Question, what kind of tree is this? Can you see? Thank you. Apple. How do you know? By its fruit. We would never expect a eucalyptus tree to produce an apple. It would be against the laws of nature. Just as each tree is known by its fruit, those who are truly God's children, who have said yes to his offer of real life and forgiveness found in Jesus, will also be known by their God-like character, namely love. If the very life of God has come to us and has come in us, then how can we not exhibit, albeit imperfectly, the very nature of God who is himself loving? This wondrous truth of God in us via the Holy Spirit has wonderful benefits to us and to the world. Let's start with us. When God's Spirit is in us, we are assured of God's love for us. Did you catch that little phrase in 4.16? And so we know and rely on or trust in the love God has for us. Wouldn't that be a beautiful way to live? Believing in the love God has for us. It's hearing and claiming for ourselves the words the Holy Spirit spoke over Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved child whom I love with you. I am well pleased. Imagine living your life out of that confidence. Bare minimum, the presence of the Spirit brings peace. Verses 17 to 18, when love comes, fear goes. Now, the fear he's talking about is not that we will never fear anything, but specifically not fearing his punishment. In the Old Testament, this day of judgment referenced in verse 17 was a day to be feared by those who disobeyed God. Here, John is saying that those who continue in love can be confident of God's acquittal on that day. If you know God only as judge or holy one, 
there's reason to fear. But if you know him as love, then there is nothing to fear, except perhaps the fear of grieving his love and hurting relationship with him. But the Spirit's presence isn't just for us, it's for the world. 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Here again is another astonishing claim. What the world needs most is not more arguments for the existence of God, but rather people who know God to love others powerfully. That will be convincing. It's not that the intellectual matters aren't important. It's just that people are more than intellect. We're heart, emotion, human beings who need belonging and love. And love is a very powerful force. When we are loved by someone, particularly when we don't deserve it, it is motivating. It elicits a response from us. It comforts and strengthens us. This is the kind of love the early church was known for. People who bumped up against them would say, I don't know if I buy that stuff they believe in, but my, how they love one another. Why? Because when we love in selfless, generous ways, we imitate the character of our God, who is in his very nature love, thereby making the invisible visible. So let's get real practical here as we close. You want to start loving someone? Start with the person whose junk is strewn all over the house. Or with the coworker who doesn't empty the coffee grounds. Or with the neighbor who's had that huge dumpster in front of their house for months. Start with that person. And then let's ask ourselves, what can we do this week to benefit them? How can we work for their good? Maybe it's with our time. Maybe it's by truly listening to them. Maybe it's by meeting a practical need they may have. Maybe it's through our speech, choosing words that build up rather than tear down. Maybe it's sharing something we've received generously with them. The opportunities are endless. But Amy, they don't deserve it right now. You don't know what they've done to me. Ah, but herein lies true love. Willing the good of others at great cost to ourselves, even when they do not reciprocate. That is true Christian love. Oh, I know. It's hard. It's not natural. Truly loving people who have harmed us or who have sought, not sought our good is not human nature. It's God's nature, remember? And we who have chosen to follow Jesus as our leader, who have said yes to his generous offer of life, has his, have his life within us. We have the very nature of God in us. His blood flows through our veins, to put it poetically. We cannot do it on our own. But we can do it as we remain in him and ask him to help us. John 15, 5 both assures and warns us of this same reality. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. As we remain in him and follow his lead, we'll learn what it really means to love. If Jesus is our model, we'll see sometimes loving others means saying hard things, like he did with the self-righteous religious leaders. 
We'll see sometimes loving others is speaking truth to others in a gracious way, as he did with many who sought him. And we'll see that sometimes loving others does not always elicit a positive response. They crucified him, remember? But we are still called to demonstrate his love to others regardless of whether others are deserving or responsive. Of all the ways we could evaluate how City Church is doing as a little body of Jesus Christ Church, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Little children, this dear old man told his band of followers, love one another. It is the Lord's command, and if this be done, it is enough. Let's pray. Oh God, again, we are so reminded the life you call us to is not the life that comes naturally. And yet it is the life that is really life. We thank you for your love. We thank you that we can stand on solid ground. That you are faithful. We thank you for your generous, initiating, sacrificial love towards us. May we relish that. May we drink of that. That we may pour that and extend that out to others. To a world desperately longing for it. For Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.